My name's Scott, and I just want to say thank you so much for being here, for hanging out with us. Uh, Super Bowl weekend, it's a big fun weekend, so thank you for taking time out of what I know. is probably a crazy busy day to be here. Thank you for those of you who are here on campus and those of you online. So glad to have you with us. We are starting a new series this week, and it's called Love Story. And what we're going to do for the next three weeks is we're going to spend this time going through what is my favorite love story in the entire Bible. There are different love stories in the Bible, but this one is, is my favorite one. And, and I've talked about it before, but we've never spent like a whole series kind of unpacking it. And so I'm really excited to spend these three weeks. It's, you know, we're in, in February, Valentine's Day is coming up. It's kind of the season of love. And so we thought this is a good time to really kind of go through this story. And, and the reason why I love this story is because it is a love story. It's, it's about a boy and a girl. It's about a couple, but it's not really about them. This is a story that, that's about us. It's about people. It's about humanity. It's about our connection and our relationship with God. And even more than that, it's about how we view God and about how God views us. The first part of the Bible is called the Old Testament. And the Old Testament tells the story of of ancient Israel. The origins of ancient Israel, where they came from, kind of the rise of ancient Israel, how they became their own kingdom, and then ultimately the fall of Israel. And in the Old Testament, there are several people that are known as prophets. And the word prophet actually means spokesperson. And a prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of God. And so as you go through the Old Testament story, there was times when God would choose someone to be a prophet. And and God always chose the prophets because they were delivering his message. And so he would choose someone and say, hey, here's the message. I need you to take this message to these people. And so the prophet's job was to go to whoever God sent them to and say, okay, here's the message. Here's what it is that God wants you to know. Now, most of the time, the way the prophets did that was through their words. They would speak. They would say, hey, here's what God wants you to know. Here's the message that God has for you. And so the Old Testament is full of of books that are named after prophets. You can usually tell those books because they'll be named like it's the person's name, like Jeremiah or Isaiah or Ezekiel. And really, when you read those books, essentially what you're reading is it's like that prophet's greatest hits. Here's all the different things they said, and people kind of collected it and wrote it down and said, hey, this is what this prophet said to us, or this is what this prophet said to these people. So most of the times, the prophets communicated through their words. But every now and then, God said, okay, I don't want you to tell the people anything. I want you to do something. And what you're going to do is going to communicate the message that I want these people to know. So it wasn't words, it was, it was actions. And, and that's really this love story that we're going to look at. It's about a guy by the name of Hosea. That's what this love story is all about. Is God is going to kind of be the one that's going to guide this love story. And he's going to tell Hosea exactly what to do. But Hosea's love story is meant to be symbolic. It's a metaphor for what God wants the, the people of Israel to hear. And so, yeah, it's a story about a boy and a girl. It's a story about a couple, but it's not really about them. It's a lot bigger than them. Their story is meant to be symbolic of really our story as human beings, as people, how we interact with God and how we see God and how we view God and how he views us and how he treats us. So we're going to spend these next three weeks kind of going through this story and, and unpacking it and, and looking at at this couple story, but talking about and really focusing on ourselves. So here's, here's how the story begins. Opens up in the, the book of Hosea. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Barry, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoiahash, the king of Israel. And so this is the kind of verse that, that if most of us, if we were to open up the Bible to the book of Hosea, which is, again, a book in the Old Testament, and we were to read this, we would skip right over this and think, okay, I don't get this at all. This means nothing. And we'd go right on. What you have to understand is this, 
this is an incredibly important verse for understanding the, the story that, that is going to be told in Hosea. Because what this verse does is this verse is really giving us the setting. This is when this story takes place. In the ancient world, the way that you would date things is you would date them by the, like, like who the ruler was. You may have seen this in other places. They do it all over the Bible, but it'll be like, you know, in the 17th year of the king of so-and-so, in the sixth year in the queen of so-and-so. That's how you would date things. You would date things by the, the reign of whoever was in charge. That's what this is doing. This is saying, okay, this happened during the reigns of these kings in Judah and of this king in Israel. Now, one thing that's important to understand is when Israel begins as a nation, it begins as one unified nation. That nation eventually becomes a kingdom because they get a king. Now, not too far into being a kingdom, Israel actually splits into two separate kingdoms. There's a division over who should really be in charge, and there's kind of a revolt. And so the United Kingdom of Israel is split into two kingdoms. The northern part keeps the name Israel. The southern part goes by Judah. And so that's the, the beginning of this is kind of telling us, okay, this happens during the reigns of these guys. This is when Hosea's career as a prophet happens, during the reigns of these guys in the south in Judah, but during the reign of Jeroboam in Israel. Now, Hosea's story takes place in Israel. He lives up in the northern kingdom. And he, he lives there during the reign of Jeroboam. So it, Hosea's story takes place in the mid-700 BCs. That's, that's when it happens, during the reign of Jeroboam. Now, Jeroboam politically is considered a great king in Israel. During Jeroboam's reign, he reigns for quite a while. And during his reign, he's able to conquer some of, of the, the enemies that are around Israel. He expands Israel's borders. They had shrunk a little bit because people had taken land from them. He expands them back out. It's a time of, of prosperity and wealth and the economy's booming. So from strictly a political standpoint, Jeroboam is a great king. And for people living in Israel, it was a time of expansion. It was a time of safety and security. There was no real threats. Everybody living in Israel, for the most part, during the reign of Jeroboam felt really good and secure. But if you start to look internally, things are actually kind of a mess. Uh, internally, you have this wealthy, powerful upper class that's exploiting the poor. And so there are a lot of poor people within Israel during the reign of Jeroboam that are constantly oppressed and they're constantly struggling. Jeroboam himself actually puts idols into these temples that were supposed to be dedicated toward God. And, and you, you have a lot of people in Israel during Jeroboam's reign that are not worshiping God. A lot of them are worshiping this other God, Baal. Baal is a Canaanite fertility God. And so internally, things are kind of a mess in Israel. But again, externally, everything's great. Everything looks good. There's prosperity. There's wealth. But what's going to happen is that after Jeroboam dies, again, he reigns for kind of a long time. After Jeroboam dies, there's this series of short-lived kings that they're like knocking each other off and assassinating each other. It creates all of this chaos in Israel. And then in 722, Israel is conquered by Assyria. Now, Judah, the southern kingdom, Judah survives. And they survive for quite a bit longer. They'll eventually be conquered by Babylon. But in 722, Israel's conquered by Assyria, and they are no more. So Hosea's story, the love story that we're going to read, takes place in the mid-700s. So it's about, you know, we don't know exactly the year, but it's about 20 years or so before the fall of Israel. But again, at this point, everyone thinks everything's great. Jeroboam's the king. Everything's strong. The borders are expanding. If you were to ask people in Israel during the time, they'd be like, oh no, everything's great. Everything's awesome. But what the writer of Hosea wants us to know is, yeah, but the end is coming. 
Even though nobody in Israel sees it, the end is coming. Kind of reminds me of uh, the movie Titanic. I don't know if, like, I remember going and seeing Titanic in the movie theater. And, and you go see that movie, and, and it's a romantic movie, and there's this love story. But every single one of us watching that movie knows, yeah, but this is going to end badly because the Titanic sinks. <laughs> and everyone knows that. And so, like, from the outside, you're watching the story going, okay, it's a great love story, but it's all going to end badly. But for the people that, like, the characters, they don't know that it's going to sink. They don't know that it's going to end badly. That's why when you watch Titanic, everyone's like, oh, this is the best boat ever. This thing's awesome. This thing's unsinkable. But us on the outside, we're like, yeah, but it's going down pretty quick. This is kind of the setting of, of Hosea. That it's this time of great prosperity and everyone thinks everything's great. But for those of us on the outside, we're going, yeah, but it's all about to end. Those of you inside the story, you may not feel it. You may not see it. It may not seem like it. But disaster is coming. So now that the stage is set, here's, here's how the love story kind of begins. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go marry a promiscuous woman. Not exactly a great beginning to a love story. Um, and this really kind of seems like the last thing that God would actually ask anyone to do. Because when you talk about any kind of religious system, and, and ancient Israel is a very religious place, when you talk about any kind of religious system, and again, I'm not just referring to Christianity or, or Judaism, like you pick any religious system. One of the most important ideas in any religion is purity. How do you remain pure? And different religions have different rules and laws and guidelines about how you remain pure. But again, in any religious system, it's like we, we have to remain pure. And one of the ways we remain pure is by not associating with people who are impure. Because if you associate with people or things that are impure, then you can be contaminated. And so most religious systems, it's like we're going to distance ourselves from any kind of impurity. And so it's not really the normal part of any religious system for a God to tell you, hey, go marry someone that would be considered impure. But this is exactly what God tells Hosea to do. I want you to go marry a promiscuous woman. Now here's what's really fascinating. Is the way that this is written, the, the promiscuous doesn't just refer to her past, it also refers to her future. And so what God tells Hosea is, I want you to go marry, first of all, a woman that has been promiscuous. So this is a woman that has a past. And sometimes for us as people, it can be really difficult to deal with someone else's past. And maybe you've experienced that in a relationship, maybe you experienced that in a relationship now, but as you begin to talk and you find out, hey, this other person has a past, sometimes as people, that's a hard thing to deal with because we think, well, can I deal with that? Can, I, can we still have a relationship? How does that past affect our ability to connect? And even for a lot of us, it's difficult for some of us to reckon with our own past. That we look back and say, okay, I have this past and what does that mean for me now and who am I now? And so dealing with, with, with a past can be difficult in its own. But this takes it one step further because God says, okay, not only does she have a past, but that past is going to continue into the future. So she's been promiscuous in the past. She slept with a bunch of guys in the past, but you're going to marry her. And after you marry her, guess what she's going to keep doing? She's going to keep sleeping with a bunch of guys in the future. That's going to be the future you're going to have together. Now, I don't know anybody that would, want to, that would want to get into a marriage like that. When you marry someone, at least everyone I know, when you marry someone, you marry someone because you believe that, hey, from this point on, we're going to be faithful to one another. No matter what the past is. Okay, you have a past, I have a past, we all have a past, but our past is our past, and from here on out, it's you and I, and we're faithful to one another. And that's why we get married. But God tells Hosea from the beginning, he says, hey, you just need to know, not only does she have a past, that past is going to continue into the future. So she's been promiscuous in the past, but even after you guys take your vows and say I do, and you become husband and wife, 
she's going to keep sleeping around. And Hosea's thinking, okay, not the ideal marriage, not the marriage I was hoping for, but it actually gets worse. It gets worse because God says, not only are you going to marry her, but here's what else you're going to do. You're going to have children with her. You're going to start a family. You're going to buy a house, get yourself a nice minivan, put the kids in soccer. You're going to be the coach, you know, get a dog, do all that kind of stuff. You are going to settle down and you are going to have a family with this woman who, remember, is going to be cheating on you the entire time. That's what you're going to do. This is not a family that I would want to be a part of. I wouldn't want to be a spouse in this family. I wouldn't want to be a child in this family. This family is like destined for disaster. It's destined for wreck. And if I'm Hosea, the question I would ask at this point is why? Okay, God, you're coming to me and telling me to do this. And and really my job as a prophet is essentially to obey. But I want to know why. Why am I marrying this woman? Why am I having this family? And almost as if God is anticipating this reaction, God says, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Hosea's relationship, his marriage, is a metaphor. It is a symbol of what's actually happening between the people of Israel and God. See, the only reason that Israel even exists as a nation is because of God. See, Israel kind of prided themselves on being like God's special nation, like being God's children. That's what, this is who we are, that God chose us. But when you go back in Israel's history, what's fascinating is that God doesn't choose Israel, he creates Israel. Israel begins with a barren couple, an old barren couple that's unable to have kids. And out of this miracle, they have a son. And this barren couple becomes a family. That family grows and becomes a tribe. That tribe becomes a people. Those people actually end up down in Egypt where they become slaves and they grow and they grow and they grow. While in the midst of their slavery, God saves them from that and leads them out of Egypt. Eventually, they'll settle down in the land of Canaan, what you and I know as Israel and the Palestinian territories, and there they will become the nation of Israel, which will become the kingdom of Israel, which will again eventually split into two kingdoms. But there is no Israel without God. That God literally creates Israel. And what's really fascinating is, is between the time where God saves them from slavery in Egypt and when they settle down in the land of Canaan, they're out in the wilderness for 40 years. And when they're out in the wilderness, before they go down, before they actually become the nation of Israel, at that point, they're still really kind of known as the Hebrew people. Before they become the nation of Israel, God binds himself to the Hebrew people. He binds himself to, to the people of Israel. And they enter into what's known as a covenant. Now, a covenant is a a very specific type of relationship. A covenant is a relationship that two parties willingly enter into, but they set the terms of the relationship ahead of time. The best example in our culture that we have of a covenant is marriage. Because marriage, if you've ever been to a wedding, two people stand up there and they exchange vows. And those vows have to do with love, honor, and cherish, and sickness and in health, for rich or for poor, as long as we both shall live. And so when you get into the marriage covenant, you know, you start off by making promises. This is what we're going to do for one another. That's how a covenant works. Covenant almost has like a a contract aspect to it. That, hey, before we enter into the relationship, we're going to be clear. This is what you're going to do. This is what you're going to do. Okay, good. Let's do it. And so in the wilderness, before they settle down in Canaan, God enters into a covenant with the people of Israel. And really the terms of the covenant are spelled out in the Old Testament law. The first five books of the Old Testament are are called the books of the law or the Torah. And it's filled with all of these, these commands 
that, that the people are going to do, but it's also filled with all these promises of what God is going to do. And so those are the terms of the covenant. That God says, okay, I'll be your God, and I will do this for you. And, and in return, Israel, you will be my people, and this is what you will do. And so in Exodus 24, there's actually this covenant ceremony where they willingly agree to enter into this, this covenant relationship. And so in Exodus 24, here's how the covenant ceremony ends. Then he, read the book of the, then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. And so the people of Israel say, yes, this is our choice. We are choosing to enter into this covenant. We are going to bind ourselves to God. We are in this relationship. You will be our God. We will be your people. We will worship and serve you only. And also in the covenant, there wasn't just things about how they would relate to God. There was things about how they would treat other people. They wouldn't take advantage of other people. They wouldn't exploit other people. And so in the wilderness, they willingly, by their own choice, they were not commanded to, they didn't have to, but they, by their own choice, said, yes, we want to enter into this covenant. The God, out of his love for Israel, saved them, and Israel, out of their gratitude, responded, yes, we want to enter into this covenant. But now, you fast forward several hundred years later to the mid-700s during the time of Hosea. And now, for centuries, the nation of Israel has been breaking this covenant over and over and over again. They've been unfaithful to the promises that they made. They've gone after other gods. They've worshipped other goddesses. They've exploited people. They've mistreated people. God has been patient over and over and over and over. But the covenant is now falling apart. This, this is what Hosea's marriage is, is going to symbolize. It's going to symbolize what's really happening between God and Israel. How this covenant has been violated for, now at this point again, centuries. And it just keeps on getting violated and broken and broken. So, so Hosea's marriage, this God says, this is why I want you to do this. Because your marriage is a symbol of what's happening between me and the people of Israel. And so Hosea, like a good prophet, does exactly what God asked him to do. And so he gets married. So he married Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. I still have always just thought Gomer's a tragic name for a woman. I just like, I apologize if you're a woman and your name is Gomer. I really do. I just like, that's just, but anyway, that's who he marries. So he marries, he marries Gomer. And again, this is not Hosea's dream wedding. And, and I'm sure Hosea's family and his friends, they're not excited for him. I mean, again, this is, this is Israel. Israel is a very religious place. It's driven on purity. And everyone knows this, you're marrying this promiscuous woman and it's probably not a good idea. So there's probably not a lot of people excited about this. But Hosea does it. After they get married, Gomer and Hosea have a son. And, and they're actually, we're going to go on and we're going to talk about three kids in total. There's three kids that, that are a part of this family. But in some ways, I think the kids have it worse off than even the parents. Because the kids are symbols too. It's not just the, the relationship between Hosea and Gomer that's meant to be symbolic. The kids are also symbolic. And so each time a kid comes into it, God tells Hosea, hey, here's what I want you to name the kids. Because I want the kids to serve as a reminder to the people of Israel too. And so here's, here's the first kid they have. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. So Jezreel is a valley. And, and the reason in this case why Jezreel is, is important is Jeroboam, who is currently the king of Israel, he is from the house of Jehu. 
That's where this, this, the, the house of Jehu. Jehu is an ancestor of Jeroboam. The reason Jehu came to power, the way he solidified his power as king, is he slaughtered a bunch of people in Jezreel Valley. So the reign of, of the, the Jehu line, lineage, of which the current king Jeroboam is still a part of, began in blood. And what God says here, yeah, it began in blood and it's going to end in blood. And it does, because after Jeroboam dies, his son becomes king for about six months, and then he's assassinated, and the house of Jehu is over. So this first kid, Jezreel, is meant to be like a reminder that, hey, the, the, the end of the royal family is over. The end of the house of Jehu is over. But more than that, the end of Israel is coming. <laughs> so every time you look at this kid, I want this kid to be a reminder that the end is coming. <laughs> that the end of your country, the end of your nation, the end of your home is, is rapidly approaching. That's kind of a messed up thing to serve as a reminder to the people around you that everything they hold dear is about to end. But that's Jezreel. Now, the next two kids, it actually gets worse. But before I tell you the names of the next two kids, I want to point out something. I want to point out something that, that I think uh, we might miss, but it's kind of important. Jezreel is the only one of these three kids that we're told is Gomer and Hosea's. The text actually says, you know, after they got married, they, they slept together and, and she conceived a son. The, other, the next two, all it says is Gomer has a kid. So what it appears like is these next two kids actually aren't Hosea's because remember, she's cheating on him this whole time. She was never going to be faithful to him. She never was. So what it seems like is these next two kids were actually conceived by someone else, but Hosea still kind of chooses to adopt them and raise them as, as part of the family. And so these kids are given like super messed up names. Part of the reason they're given super messed up names is because of the manner in which they're conceived. And again, it's all symbolic. It all means something. So Gomer has another kid, and here's what God tells him to name him. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call her Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved. For I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them. So the first son is named Jezreel. He's a reminder that everything's coming to an end. The second kid is a daughter, and you're going to call her not loved. Now, in our culture, in our world, we don't put a lot of thought into like, name meanings. I know some of you might. There may be some of you that might. There may be some of you that check that stuff. But on a whole, like my kids, when we, married, or when we named our kids, Jeremy and Catherine, I couldn't even tell you what their names mean. I know you can go online and like go into name meanings. I have no idea. I have no, that, that didn't occur to me. I remember looking at websites where you would find out like what's the most popular name and you could see like that. But we never looked at namings. A lot of cultures, like the, the meaning of a name is super, super important. I actually just for fun went online. I was just searching like different name meanings. And, and I came across this, this website. It was really interesting. It was like a mom's website. And it was written by a mom for other moms. And she had one particular article that she'd written on this website. And she said, hey, I just want parents to be aware of what some, of, some popular names actually mean. And so she literally went through this list of, hey, here's some fairly popular names. And just so you know, this is what those names actually mean. Now, I have no idea where she got the origin of these names. If your name is one of these names or you named your children one of these names, I really apologize. Um, but there was a few that I found interesting. And again, according to this website, this lady said, hey, this is what these names actually mean. So here they are. Mallory means bad luck. So if that's your name, if that's what you named your daughter. Portia means pig. Courtney means broken or short nose. Campbell means crooked mouth. Kennedy is ugly head, and Byron is cow barn. Again, 
I have no idea how accurate these things are. This was just this lady's thing that she put together that said, and her whole thing was, hey, be careful because, you know, you don't want to name your kid Cow Barn. But, but the, the, the reason why I kind of found this funny is because, again, in the culture that you and I live in, this is the, the name meanings don't mean anything to us. Like, okay, this name came from, you know, Scotland. and the, Okay, whatever. That's like the name. So in our culture, we look at this and we laugh, and, and please, I, I honestly hope you're not offended because I don't put any really stock into any of this. Um, but that's, again, that's the culture that we live in. But there are a lot of cultures that put a huge value on what a name means, like the meaning of a name. Like, that's everything. It doesn't matter if the name sounds cool or not, just what does it mean? And ancient Israel is a culture that very much puts value in the meaning of the name. Not so much what the name is. That's why if you ever read through the Bible, like whenever people are named, it's the name meaning that's important. It's not the name itself. See, in our culture, it's just, we like the name. Why'd you name your kid that? Because I like the name. But in ancient Israel, it's like, no, the meaning of it is everything. <laughs> so this daughter is named not love. Because that loving relationship between God and Israel is, is gone. Third child, it gets even worse. Here's the name the third child is given. Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. So the first kid is Jezreel. He's a reminder that everything's coming to an end. Second kid is not loved because we clearly don't love each other anymore. And the third kid is you're not mine. And again, in the context of Hosea and Gomer's relationship, it's like, why did you name your kid not mine? And Hosea's response would have been, well, because he's not mine. It's just, I just want everybody to know that. But again, remember, the, the whole relationship is symbolic of, of God's relationship with Israel. And so God's point here is, yeah, you and I don't belong to each other anymore. But yeah, we entered into this covenant hundreds of years ago, but the covenant's over. With the birth of this third child, God is announcing the end of the covenant between him and Israel. Now, the covenant will go on between God and Judah. But God says, yeah, with the birth of this third kid, this third kid, this is, this covenant, this loving covenant relationship between us is over. Now at this point, our first reaction might be to kind of assume that God is, is mean or that God is harsh or that God is angry. But what's fascinating is when you read through Hosea and you actually look at the way it's written, God is not doing what he's doing out of anger. He's hurt. And it's interesting because we don't often think of God as someone who hurts. Our picture of God is that God is big and strong and the creator and he's all-knowing and he's all-powerful. And so this is why we tend to view God as like bitter and vindictive and angry. But, but the picture that's painted here in Hosea, I think this is one of the most intimate pictures we get of God in the, in the entire Bible, is God is a God who hurts. Because all the biblical writers in the Old Testament and the New Testament, when they talk about God, they describe God as a personal being. And God loves. And the fact that God loves means that he can be hurt. Because if you love, if you can love, then when that love is not reciprocated or when that love is rejected, it hurts, doesn't it? And so what's happening here between God and Israel is, first of all, that God is hurt because literally for centuries, for centuries, Israel has been cheating on him. And every time they do, it hurts him the same way that adultery hurts people. This is the point of, uh, one of the major points of, of Hosea and Gomer's relationship. Is God is, is telling the people of Israel, don't you see what you're doing? Don't you see what's happening here? You've literally destroyed our relationship. 
For hundreds of years, God has been patient. For hundreds of years, God has been gracious. For hundreds of years, God has tried to say, come back, come back, come back. But Israel has just kept going after other things, other gods, other goddesses. And God has been being hurt for years and years and years and years. And so what God's doing here is he's not responding out of anger. What he's literally doing is saying, okay, You've never been faithful to this covenant. You've never been faithful to this relationship. It doesn't seem like you want to be. So let's just end it. In the New Testament, when Jesus teaches us about surrender, Jesus says the way that we surrender to God is when we get to that point where we're willing to say, your will be done. Jesus shows us in his own life and in the way that he prays when he's like, God, I want you to do something. But you know what, God, in the end, I care about your will more than I want my way. That this is what surrender really looks like. That when we're willing to look at God and say, you know what, God, I want your will to be done. What's happening in the story of Hosea is essentially the complete reverse of this. Is God is looking at Israel and God is saying, okay, your will be done. You don't want to be a part of this covenant. You don't want to be faithful to this covenant doesn't seem like you ever have. I have tried, but okay, go. You're free to pursue whatever you want. You're free to do whatever you want. The covenant's over. Now, along with that, it's not just that Israel now has the the freedom to go pursue whatever they want. It's that everything God was going to do for Israel is going to end too, which is ultimately why Assyria comes in and conquers them, because they lost that protection. That was all part of the covenant. But God is looking at Israel from a place of really just a hurt, broken heart and saying, okay, This seems like what you want, so I'm letting you go. It's over. One of the questions that people ask all the time is people ask questions about the afterlife. Like, what's what's heaven like? What's hell like? And those things are really hard to to really get specific on because most of the, the, the writings in the Bible, when they talk about the afterlife, when they talk about either heaven or hell, it's all symbolic language like streets of gold, and, and that sounds great, but have you ever thought practically, like, wouldn't that be slippery? Like, how would you even walk on a street of gold? Like, it's all, it sounds really cool, it sounds really pretty, but most of it is very symbolic, and the same thing is true of hell. Like, the word that Jesus uses for hell is actually a, a dump, and, and the, the whole thing about fire, fire and all, like, it's, they're all symbolic. They're just painting pictures of, of a reality. But I once heard N.T. Wright say something that has stuck with me. It was really powerful. N.T. Wright said, you know, you know what I think hell is? And Tarot said, hell is that moment where God says, okay, your will be done. God looks at someone and says, you didn't want anything to do with me. You didn't want anything to do with the life that I created. You didn't want anything to do with with any kind of connection with me. It's okay. Your will be done. Here it is. Go. And this is what's happening between God and Israel in the story of, of Hosea. That God has been hurt for so long and this, this covenant has been violated for so long that God's finally just saying, okay, let's just stop pretending. <laughs> it's not here anyway. So let's just end it. It's over. And if that's where the story ended, it would be like a super bummer. Like if I just stopped right now and said, hey, thank you all so much for coming. I hope you have a great day. Enjoy the Super Bowl. I'd like you to walk out and be like, oh, that, that sucks. But here's what's crazy. The first nine verses of Hosea 1 all kind of go together, and they all are telling this this story about Hosea and Gomer and and the heartbreak between God and Israel and kind of the the breaking down of this relationship and, 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 and just the mess, the mess that it's in, the mess that Hosea and Gomer's 
Marriage is in at this point, the mess that God and Israel's relationship is at this point. But then there's two more verses in Hosea 1, verse 10 and 11, that really don't make any sense with the previous nine. <laughs> like if you look at it, they're completely out of place. Like it's, it's going along, it's progressing, and you understand it. And then all of a sudden you get to verse 10, and it's like, boom, it's like a total flip. Like it's like a, a total 180 in the complete opposite direction. Because here's how Hosea 1 ends. After God has laid it all down there, it's over, it's ending, it's done. Here's how it ends. Here's what he comes back to. Yet, the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. And so you have this like total bummer love story all the way through. And even when it gets to the, like the, the, the end and the worst, and like it's all falling apart, it's over, it's going to end. God comes back and says, yeah, but it's not really over. Because as much as this is going to hurt and as much as it's going to stink and as much as there's going to be a lot of repercussions from this, God's like, yeah, but, but there's still hope in the future. And he actually begins by quoting from Genesis, this idea that the people of Israel will be numerous. God goes back and says, yeah, but we're going to bring it back to the way it was in the very beginning. We're going to bring that back. And then, I don't know if you notice it, but he changes the meanings of all the kids' names. And he says, you, you who are called not loved will be called loved. You who are not my people now, you'll be my people again. And he says, and then Israel and Judah will be brought back together. There will be this great restoration. And you'll be brought together under God. And then great will be the day of Jezreel. Not bad anymore. Now it's going to be great. And so the end of Hosea, after it's all kind of fallen apart, after it's all a mess, all of a sudden everything just kind of flips. And God says, yeah, but that's, that's not the real end. That's what's happening now, and that's what we're about to go through. But even beyond that, there's something more. Beyond that, there's going to be hope. Beyond that, there's going to be restoration. Beyond that, things are going to come back together. One of the things that I find really interesting with us as people, and this is true of me, I do this all the time, is, is you look at a story or you read through a story, and I'm always fascinated with how often we miss what is really the main point of the story. Because if you were to just walk away right now and, and, and someone was to ask you, hey, you went to church this morning, what did you talk about? What you'd probably say is, well, we talked about this really promiscuous lady, and then God is really angry, and so he punishes Israel. That's how we describe it. Because that's the part of the story that most sticks out. But if that's how we described it, we would miss the whole point. It kind of makes me think of um, Harry Potter a little bit. I don't know if you're familiar with Harry Potter. If you're not, I'm not going to try to give any spoilers. But what's fascinating about Harry Potter, and this is true whether you've read all the, the, the books or you've watched all the movies. I mean, that's the, that series has sold more books than any other book series in history. Really, really popular. The movies are really popular. And, and, and again, whether you, the, the books or the movies, this is true of both of them. Harry Potter is ultimately, like when you talk about it, if someone was to ask you, hey, what's Harry Potter about? You would say, oh, it's about magic. And it is. It's about, you know, wizards and they go to this wizarding school and they're trying to learn spells and they have wands and there's all these mythical creatures and it's a battle of good versus evil and it's everybody trying to be the most powerful and have the strongest spell and the strongest wand and all these other things. And that's what we love about Harry Potter. That's what draws us in, like the, it's the fantasy part of it. You know, that's why not only do we read books and watch movies, but you can go to Universal Studios, to Harry Potter Land. You can play like Harry Potter video games, Harry Potter board games, all that kind of stuff. But here's what I find really, really interesting about, about uh, Harry Potter. And again, this is something I actually, again, heard from N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright was talking about Harry Potter one time. He said, you know, the interesting thing about Harry Potter is really the heart of Harry Potter, like the central theme 
is that sacrificial love is the most powerful force on earth. Because when Harry, Harry Potter begins, like if you look at the first movie or the first book, Harry Potter begins, the reason Harry Potter's famous is because he's the boy that survived. That the, this evil wizard Voldemort came along and killed everybody, but when he tried to kill Harry, he, Harry defeated him. The reason that Harry defeated him is because Harry's mom sacrificed herself for her son. The reason he is the boy that survived is because of, of sacrificial love. Now, as the story goes on, again, it's everybody going to school and everybody learning and trying to become super powerful. But when you get all the way to the end, and again, I don't want to spoil it for you, but if you get all the way to the end, ultimately, what is it in the end that wins the day? Sacrificial love. In the midst of all of this, like, trying to become strong and spells and magic, like, the point of that is there is no magic that's stronger than sacrificial love. That sacrificial love is stronger than any magic. But if someone were to ask you, hey, what's Harry Potter about? You wouldn't look back at him and go, it's about how sacrificial love is the most powerful force in the world. You wouldn't say that. You would say, oh, no, well, it's, it's about magic. And it is. It is about magic. But at the heart of it is this idea, yeah, but more powerful than any magic is sacrificial love. That's the point. Sometimes when we read stories in, in, in the, the, the Bible, we read stories in the Old Testament or New Testament, we get focused on all the little things and we miss the point. The point of this is not the anger of God. The point of this is not, you know, Gomer's promiscuous past or her promiscuous future. The point of this story, the point of Hosea and Gomer's marriage and their relationship is this. With God, love is always the first and last word. That's the point. And if we don't get that, then we miss it. Because the whole story begins with the fact that Hosea is going to love somebody that most people wouldn't think is worth loving. I mean, most people would write Gomer off right from the beginning and say, don't, don't go anywhere near that. But God says, no, you're, you're going to love. You're going to love even though most people would say she's not worth loving. And then, yeah, you're going to get in this relationship. And guess what? This relationship is going to be messy because people are messy and relationships are messy. And a lot of times we get stuck in the mess in the middle. And we're going to spend the next two weeks talking about what do we do in the midst of the mess. Because there's a lot more that has to happen now between Hosea and Gomer. Yeah, things are messy. It's a big mess. So what's Hosea going to do in the midst of the mess? What's God going to do in the midst of the mess? That's what we're going to spend the next couple of weeks talking about. But what you see at the end of Hosea chapter 1 is even on the other side of the mess, it comes back to love. See, one of the reasons so many of us struggle with, with, with God, with the idea of God, with who God is, is because we get stuck with the mess in the middle. And in the mess in the middle, there's all kinds of feelings and there's all kinds of emotions and there's all kinds of experiences. And you see those throughout the Bible. Because again, God is a, it's a personal God. God is not an emotionless being. You and I have emotions. God has emotions. There's feelings. There's all this complexity. There's a mess that's in the middle. But with God, it always begins and ends with love. His first and last word for you is beloved. And in order to understand who God is, we have to learn to see God for who he is. There's a, the biblical writers will use a lot of words to describe what God is like. God is like this or God is like that. But they only ever say God is one thing. He is love. John writes that in the New Testament. God is love. Today, the only thing that I want you to know, the only thing I want you to walk out of here knowing is that in your life, the first and last thing God says is I love you. That his love always wins out. Yeah, yeah, there may be emotions in the middle. There may be feelings. There may be a mess in the middle. But his love always wins out. Always. 
And so this week, is, is you, you may find yourself going about like your daily, weekly routine, and you may find yourself in moments where, where you start to feel worthless or, you, or maybe moments where you start to like doubt yourself or, or you even wonder about God. Here's what I want you to do in those moments. I want you to stop and just repeat over and over again in your mind, God loves me. God loves me. Just say it. God loves me. God loves me. Say it so much that it sinks in. Let me pray. We'll be done. Father, I thank you so much for your love for us. I thank you that you loved us enough that you came down here and you died and you rose again. And God, I thank you that with you, love is always the first and the last. It's always the beginning and the end. God, help us to not get stuck in the middle, the mess in the middle, but to know that you love us, even, even if other people look at us and say we're not worthy of love, that you love us. And God, you're gonna love us through whatever mess we're in. And the last thing they'll say about us is that you love us. God, help us to remember who you really are. Help us to see you for who you really are, the God who loves. We thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.